I'm going to have this guy here, so hopefully it works. All right, so uh, we are continuing in our new sermon series uh, related to uh, the daily prayer project called Worship for Weary Souls, Communal Habits and Daily Rhythms of Grace. And we're taking each part of this, we started this last week, and we're taking each part of this new liturgy that we're hoping to do to kind of understand what does it mean for us uh, to worship God with our daily habits. Well, uh, if I were to offer you the choice between an all-expense-paid trip to one of the most beautiful places on earth. Now, there's some debate for sure on what is the most beautiful place on earth, but I did find an article that claimed a scientific study on the most beautiful place on earth. Uh, based, it, it was not Muncie. Uh, based on uh, watching eye movement on people, uh, showing them pictures of things and watching their eye movement and how long they stayed on something, I don't know how scientific that is, but uh, they said it was this place, uh, Pado Lake, Canada. Uh, so apparently the lake is fed by glacier water, which is why it's this like turquoise. I mean, that looks gorgeous, right? Okay, so I'm offering you an all expense paid trip to this place or a slideshow of pictures of the 100 most beautiful places on earth. Which one are you going to choose? Right? Now, you might be like, I, so before you choose, let me show you a couple other places. Uh, this is the, what, the Maldives right there. That was number two. Uh, Mary, uh, Maru Island, the Maldives. There's Jurassic Coast in the United Kingdom. You can see the whole Milky Way. Look at that. That's pretty nice. Yosemite. Right, you could stand there and experience it, or you could look at more pictures of it, like lots of pictures. Or there's Lake Tekapu in New Zealand, again, fed by snow melting, so it's like this turquoise color, right? Mount Doom? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> I think so. I think so. <laughs> so, what, which, which are you choosing? Now, you might be thinking, well, duh, I'm taking the trip. But would you? The reality is, there still are going to be costs involved in taking the trip. It's all expenses paid, but you see that guy standing on Yosemite? You'd have to hike up there. Like, that would be a little bit of work. You'd have to get to the, the glorious vista. You know, I looked up this uh, Pado Lake because I was like, are there any Airbnbs nearby? They're actually pretty far away because it's like in a national park, I think. And so you got to like get in. It's going to take some work to get there. To see the most beautiful place, you're going to have to do some work. Probably going to have to fly there. Maybe you don't like flying. Probably are going to have to put your Netflix series on hold to go view this place. Now, you might be thinking, that's ridiculous. Come on. But is it? As a culture, we are rapidly losing our sense of awe. And we, a little bit different than that kind of awe, rapidly losing our sense of collective awe at majesty. And we continue to be content to be satisfied by a counterfeit awe, by little replacements, by instead of seeing the most beautiful place on earth, being content to see a hundred pictures of more beautiful places. When we actually examine our lives, we often live our lives in that way, where we're offered something that could really inspire us and give us awe, and we choose something that's counterfeit instead. Throughout this sermon series, we're looking at the different parts of what we're calling the liturgy of Jesus. Uh, well, I thought that that was the next slide, but it's fine. We'll get there. Uh, and looking at the different parts of the Daily Prayer Project. And this morning we're going to be looking at the call to worship. This daily liturgy begins with a call to worship. We begin our service every Sunday with a call to worship. Why do we do that? Is it just some tradition that we have that's empty? Like why are we doing that intentionally? That's what I want to talk about this morning. And to do so, we're going to look at the book of Acts chapter 17. Now, we're going to walk through this passage, and then we'll come back to pieces of it to, to look at why we would 
start our service and why we would start our daily liturgy with this call to worship. So uh, in this section of Acts, Paul has been traveling and he shows up in Athens uh, and this is what happens here. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say about these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians as well as the foreigners in Athens, seemed to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. They knew it was trending on Twitter all the time. They're always talking about it. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I am telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand where they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since that is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them. But some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysus, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. All right, so... This section of, it's, it's a great passage in which we're going to see some, some of the aspects that we need to understand. What, why do we do a call to worship? Why do we have this piece in this liturgy and in our worship service? And what I want to say to us this morning is that what we need and what the call to worship is designed to do is to give us a view of the transcendence of God. We need to see God as he is. And to feel awe at him. When's the last time that you felt a true sense of awe? Last week, our family was on vacation uh, with uh, Serena and uh, Sam Whalen, and uh, it was a, a great time. We got, got away, and we were in the woods. There was like a property that had like 40 acres on it, and we were in the woods. And we had our kids stay up so that they could see the stars because we realized kids don't really see the stars because there's so much light pollution. It's not really, you're not able to see the stars well. And we just stood outside and stared at the stars. And it was like one of these moments of like, man, that is a sense of awe. Looking upon stars and being able to see them in the sky and felt this sense of awe. But then we came home. And everything in our culture seeks to take away our sense of awe. And when awe is lacking, when a view of the transcendence of God is lacking, we will create idols. What was happening for the Athenians, in which Paul is addressing, is they had lost the sense of awe, and so they created idols. Because that's what we do. Because we are created as worshiping, desire-driven creatures. That's naturally what we're going to do. If we lose a sense of awe, we're going to find something else to worship. And most naturally, that 
awe is going to end up, that worship is going to end up centering on us, ourselves. Because outside of the Lord, according to the scriptures, the most glorious things in the universe are you and I, not the stars. The most glorious thing in the universe is the thing that's stamped with God's image apart from God himself. And so we will end up beginning to worship images of ourselves. We will begin to end up worshiping ourselves and things about us rather than God. And so last week what we did is discussed this idea of the liturgy of Jesus in contrast to a a liturgy, a, a practice of worship that the world offers us and then that we try and create in religion and we tried to say, what does Jesus call us to instead of those things, right? Uh, th- this is the slide I thought that was up earlier, but uh, the liturgy of Jesus, these aspects of our daily prayer project, the call is the first one that we're looking at today. And we looked at, uh, in opposition to the liturgy of Jesus, this call, uh, the world offers to us autonomy, uh, a sovereign sense of self that the highest determiner is not God, but you. And religion seeks to offer a chore, worshiping God as a chore instead. So we're going to look at these things as we move forward uh, this morning, looking at uh, what it means to call, uh, for God to call us into worship. This autonomy that the world offers to us, this is the idea of us being the ultimate and decisive determiner in every situation. The need for us to express ourselves and our desires and wants above all else. Now there are some habits that we have embraced as a culture that help us understand what it means for us to be totally autonomous. Not needing God in any way. I want to walk through a couple of these habits and then we're going to contrast that using this passage to look at a few ways in which we actually need to see the transcendence of God. But, but there are things that we don't really think of. Because here's, here's the thing, and here's the argument that I'm going to make throughout this sermon series is, it's not the really obvious things that begin to form us, it's the things that we don't think about. It's the things that we don't think about that are sort of automatic habits of our life that are actually leading us in a direction of being formed to be a certain kind of people And we want to say, hey, let's actually look at those things and see, are those things forming us to be like Jesus, or are they forming us to be something else? So I want to look at a few things that I believe point us to habits of autonomy, of seeing ourselves apart from God. One is the habit of of hurry. We hurry all the time. We hurry all the time. One, just meaningless sort of thing, right, is how many of us speed when we drive? Just all, you don't need to raise your hands, but go ahead, you can. Way to go, Jim. I like that. Just honesty there. Right? The reality is we are always in a hurry. We don't slow down. We have need to hurry because we got places to go. We got things to do. And when someone's in front of us who doesn't have places to go and things to do, we are frustrated. Yeah, when John's driving in front of you, you're frustrated because he's just, you know, he's just doing his thing, slowing down. And you're like, wait a second. I got places to go. You got to get out of my way. And then when I get in the fast lane, They're still slower than I need to go, so i got to get back in the slow lane, past the guy in the fast lane, because he doesn't know what he's doing. He should be in the slow lane. i got to get close. i got to get close to the next person right in front of me, because they are going too slow. Actually, everyone around me, don't they realize that they exist to get out of my way? Like, did they not get the memo? That I am the most important thing in the universe? Do you see how a subtle habit can move us in a place where we're actually functioning like we're the most important thing in the universe? Get out of my way. I gotta hurry. And I gotta hurry because I don't have any margin in my life. 
I've so overscheduled my life that I don't have any margin. I don't have any white space in my calendar. I don't have any spots in which it's just like, no, 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 there's literally nothing on the calendar. There's nothing that I'm doing. I have margin. No, we don't do that. We fill it. That's why I got to hurry because I'm late. And I'm late because I overscheduled myself. I'm mainly just telling you guys what I do, right? Like this is, this is really what happens. I'm late to everything. Anyone who meets with me in any regularity knows I'm going to be late. Everyone's nodding their head, right? Because I don't have margin. Another habit of our hurry is we don't really have a morning routine or a quiet time because we don't have time for it. How many of you have started to figure this out as we've tried to introduce a morning liturgy and an evening liturgy of like, wait a second, okay, well, if I just read the lesson part, then I'll be ahead, I'll be in good shape. I'm gonna skip over the call, I'm gonna skip over this, right? Because I'm in a hurry. I don't have very much time. Don't have enough time to meet with the Lord. Or how about, I know I have to make a call to someone. I'm just gonna text him instead. Not because texting is gonna be effective in this, but because I don't have time. I don't wanna make time. I'm in a hurry. I'm just gonna do this real quick thing, right? Or how about us being quick to speak? We're in a hurry to get our thoughts out. I've said this many times and I'll say it again. Almost all of Twitter and most of social media should be a journal and a group text message with some good friends. <laughs> you should write these thoughts out and think of that, about them before you put them online. Save us a lot of trouble. But we're quick to speak. We gotta hurt. We gotta get out in front of everything. We, people gotta know that we know what we're talking about about this thing. People gotta know that we care about this thing. People gotta see what I ate for dinner. Because I got to hurry and get that out there so that people know I have a life. Because I'm in a hurry. We don't wait for anything. We don't wait. We're in constant motion, constant entertainment, constant something. We need to have something going on because we're in a hurry. And us being in a hurry, if you've ever noticed, anything that inspires awe takes time. You see, you can't rush worship. Awe takes time. And our speed, our hurry, causes us to think we're the most important thing in the universe and we, everyone's got to get out of the way. It's not just habits of autonomy or habits of hurry that cause us to think about ourselves as autonomous. It's also habits of distraction. What did they, what were they doing in Acts when Paul showed up? What did it say about the Athenians? They were like, wait a second, you got something to say. Come, let's hear about that. But you know what? The next day, they probably had someone else who had something new to say. So you know what? We don't have to think about that thing that Paul said anymore. That resurrection of the dead, that was weird. Let's just think about something new. Let's distract ourselves. You see, in distracting ourselves and always constantly trying to learn something new, we don't have to slow down long enough to deal with the knowledge that we actually already have. To be confronted with what we already know about God and the universe and our own lives. We can distract ourselves into thinking there's always something new to learn and therefore I don't have to be accountable to anything. I can distract myself away. I can take up these habits of distracting all of these areas of my life so that I don't have to think deeply about my own place in the universe, about how small I really am in the universe. I can just simply distract myself. And we have endless opportunities to do this. If you don't like that streaming service, pick up a different one. You don't like that show, you can do that show. You don't like those friends, get new ones. You don't like that job, get a different one. We can constantly change and do everything 
And all of that is feeding that the world exists to entertain me, right? In, in our habits of hurry, the world exists to get out of my way. In our habits of distraction, the world exists to entertain me. And if everything is entertaining to me, then I'm constantly being shown, again, the point of it is for me to be satisfied, for me to experience something, for me to do this thing. And it centers again on me. We have habits of hurry, we have habits of distraction, and we have habits of self-sufficiency. Teaches us to be autonomous. We can do everything by ourselves. You know, this one of the subtle ways in which this has come into my life is having my smartphone. Have you ever left the house thinking like, well, I'm fine because I have my phone. As long as I have my phone, I can look up whatever I need. I can find where I'm going. I can pay for something. I, I, I can pay for something on this. My wallet's attached to it. I don't even need to bring a wallet. I don't need anything but this thing. And what it's teaching me constantly is, I also don't need any of you. Like, I don't need to call someone for directions because I can just look it up on my phone. I don't need to ask a friend about this thing because I'll just Google it. It'll be fine, right? I'm just beginning in these small, subtle ways to learn that I'm sufficient for my day. I don't need anyone else. Certainly don't need the Lord to do anything, right? This self-sufficiency, I mean, just think about the way in which Paul is speaking to these people in Acts in a different time, in a different culture, in which, like, for most of human history... Someone in the household spent the whole day figuring out how everyone was just going to survive to the next day. Like, how are we all going to eat? How are we all going to do this? How often is that any of our thoughts? It's like, well, you know, yeah, shoot, I forgot to prep this meal. I'll just go through the drive-thru. It's there. Just go to the grocery store. It's there. I'm totally self-sufficient. How often do we think about the weather affecting whether or not I eat. We don't. Like, the weather ruins my plans. It doesn't feed the crops. It ruins my plans. Right? There's just habits of our culture and of time. Now, please hear me out here. I'm not suggesting that we are all becoming Amish. And we're all leaving this, uh, like, that's not the direction we're heading. That's not the application of this sermon, right? But it is to, for us to recognize that there are things in our culture that are trying to shape us unintentionally or intentionally that we have bought into that make us feel self-sufficient. That make us feel like we are in charge of our own lives and the universe and we can do whatever we want. And therefore, we have to be intentional about counteracting that. We have to be intentional about thinking about those things. The way we shop, the way we consume, the way we eat, all of these things are forming us in a certain way. The other thing that is forming us in this self-sufficiency is our idolatry. We're actually not all that unlike the Athenians with their Various shrines to different gods. If you really think about what worship is, ascribing ultimate value and worth to something, you could walk around any city and you could see various shrines to various gods. We really think about it, right? That's the whole point of this sermon series is to remember you're actually worshiping all the time. The question is not whether or not you're worshiping, it's what you're worshiping. And so we need to recognize that we do this all the time. We create gods all the time. And actually, we as Christians do this all the time when we look at the scriptures and we pick and choose which aspects of God we like and those we believe and others we reject because we don't like them. Why, why do we do that? It's easy. And because it's literally what we do in every other area of our life. We don't like that. Well, we just don't have to do it. We could do something else. You see, we're being trained constantly by our culture in order to be shaped to be autonomous, 
self-sufficient, hurried, and distracted people. How are we going to address this? How, how do we actually address this? Well, my argument to us this morning from this passage is that we need awe. We need to build transcendent, or we need to build a picture of God that is transcendent. We need to see God as he actually is. Paul says here in Acts 17, he says, speaking of God, he says, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs. He has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. Do you see how countercultural this is in the time in which Paul is talking? He's walking around literally looking at shrines of idols, right, that had been crafted. And what he says to these people is, how is something that you made a god? You see how ridiculous that is? How are you ascribing ultimate worth and value to something that someone else made? Right? It sounds very similar to what the prophets say in the Old Testament where they say uh, at, at one point, oh, you take this piece of wood and half of it you heat your house with, the other half is a god because you carve it up into something. But that's what we do when we ascribe ultimate value and worth to things in the world. We have said, this is a God in which it's something that's created. Can't be a God. Paul says, he himself has no needs. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in man-made temples. He doesn't live in temples. He is the God of heaven and earth. He is bigger than you can imagine. He has no needs. No needs. Now, we need to wrestle with this, and we're going to wrestle with this in a moment when we get to our, uh, the way in which we kind of try to counteract this with religion. Because with religion, what we try and do is actually see God as needing us. He needs us to worship him. He needs us to show up and serve. He needs us to do these things, right? What Paul is saying is, no, no, God has no needs. He doesn't need you. Doesn't need your worship. Doesn't need your service. Doesn't need your devotion. Doesn't need your obedience. He has no needs. None. Do we really believe that? One of my favorite places in Scripture that kind of addresses some of this with the transcendence of God is the book of Job. You know the story of Job? Job is a righteous man who has everything taken away from him. The Lord allows Satan to, to uh, test him, takes everything away from him. And then Job is frustrated and complaining and lamenting. And he's got this terrible group of friends that don't help him out at all. They, they, they're terrible. They just show up and they're like, Job, this is all your fault, man. Like, what's wrong with you? And finally, the Lord answers him. And the Lord answers him with a view of his transcendence. In the midst of Job's trying to wrestle through how is the world the way it is, what God says is what you need is to see me as who I really am. Because you're not seeing me as who I really am. So I'm going to read actually all of Job 38. So a lengthier chapter. But this is, this is how God responds to Job. And I think it's what we need to hear. In light of all of our hurry and distraction, in light of all of our self-sufficiency, what you need to hear from God is, no, 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 that's not how it is. The Lord, then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. This is what we need to hear when we think that we are self-sufficient apart from God. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundation and who laid its cornerstone? 
As the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy, who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb? And as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in a thick darkness, for I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores. Right? This is poetic language for like, hey, Job, when did you tell the water where to stop at the Atlantic Ocean? Right? Sometimes when we are so consumed with ourselves and our agendas and our lives, what you need to hear is, wait a second, when was the last time that you held back the Pacific Ocean? Please tell me that. I said, this far and no further will you come. Here, your proud waves must stop. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth to bring an end to the night's wickedness? We wake up every morning just expecting that the day is going to come. When's the last time you woke up and said, son, come on, get up. You could do a lot of things with your smartphone, but you can't make the sun rise. It's not going to happen. As the light approaches, the earth takes shape like clay pressed beneath the seal. It is robed in brilliant colors. The light disturbs the wicked and stops the arm that is raised in violence. Have you explored the springs from which the seas come? Have you explored their depths? Do you know where the gates of death are located? Have you seen the gates of utter gloom? Do you realize the extent of the earth? Tell me if you know. Where does light come from and where does darkness go? Can you take each... of? each to its home? Do you know how to get there? But of course you know all this, for you were born before it was all created, and you are so very experienced. It's just so great, the way in which the Lord addresses us in our self-sufficiency. Have you visited the storehouses of snow or seen the storehouses of hail? I have reserved them as weapons for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war. Where is the path to the source of light? Where's the home of the east wind? Who created a channel for, torrent, for the torrents of rain? Who laid out the path for the lightning? Who makes the rain fall on barren land in a desert where no one lives? Who sends rain to satisfy the parched ground and make the tender grass spring up? Does the rain have a father? Who gives birth to its dew? Who is the mother of the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens? For the water turns to ice as hard as rock and the surface of the water freezes. Can you direct the movement of the stars, binding the cluster of Pallades or loosening the cords of Orion? Can you direct the constellations through the seasons or guide the bear with her cubs across the heavens? Do you know the laws of the universe? Can you use them to regulate the earth? Can you shout to the clouds and make it rain? Can you make lightning appear and cause it to strike as you direct? Who gives in, intuition to the heart and inst- instinct to the mind? Who is wise enough to count all the clouds? Who can tilt the water jars of heaven when the parched ground is dry and the soil was hard, has hardened into clods? Can you stock prey for a lioness and satisfy the young lion's appetite as they lie in their dens or crouch in the thicket? Who provides food for the ravens when their young cry out, to God and wander about in hunger. God actually goes on to say more and more throughout Job 39, but we're gonna stop there. You see, the reality is God is big and transcendent. And in the midst of our momentary lives, we need to see a God who exists and owns all things and has no need. We need to see that the God of the universe knows all things and you are not self-sufficient. You are not the master of the universe. You are not even master of your own day because you can't cause the sun to rise. We need to avoid this autonomy because God is transcendent. And yet, we often, if we're not careful, we're gonna slip from this into a religious activity of seeing God as a chore. Of seeing God as a chore that we need to show up at. It's gonna continue to rob us of the same awe. We have these habits in which we see God as a chore, right? So if God is holy and transcendent, we better show up because he's really big and awesome. So we better show up. 
And if I give and if I do my thing and if I meet with him in all these pieces, then everything will go okay for me. And there are these habits of chore that rob us of the same awe. The first is that of shame. In light of the transcendence of God, sometimes our first response is shame. Not just a hatred of our sin, but a hatred of ourselves. A speaking of unworthiness to ourselves. How often do we end our day thinking through all the things we should have done, and in the moments in which we're convicted of sin, we respond by shaming ourselves. We speak unkind words to ourselves. We repeat unkind things that were said to us maybe as children or said to us as adults or said to us by the world. We repeat those things to ourselves over and over again. Somehow thinking if we can make ourselves, beat ourselves up, we'll see God as better and more glorious. And yet these habits of shame don't actually cause us to run to God, do they? They cause us to run to other idols that will satisfy our shame. They cause us to run away from God because we don't want to be in his presence. If I am who I really am and know myself to be in my heart of hearts, if I know my thoughts and my desires and my words and actions and and particularly the things that no one else sees and knows, do I want to stand before that God who makes the sun rise, who is transcendent and holy, who has no needs? Do I want to stand before him? Who can stand before him? Right, That was our call to worship this morning. Who can stand on his holy mountain? Only those who are pure. But what if I'm not pure? You see, then I shame myself. No, you're not pure. You don't get to stand there. You don't get to approach God. Who do you think you are? Go away from him for a while. He's dissatisfied with you. Just just go beat yourself up over this stuff. You should have done this. You should have done that. That habit of shame that we constantly lean on leads really well into a habit of performance where I base my relationship with God on rule following and moral duties, checking off the box, right? Because of our shame, sometimes I serve here on Sunday mornings to cover up what I did on Saturday night. Because I'm ashamed of this thing and my relationship with God is based solely on my performance, I have to show up in this way and serve. Otherwise, I'm not accepted before God. And if I'm not doing well, then I just live in shame and I don't show up and I avoid worship. I avoid people. I avoid tough questions. Why? Because I'm afraid of the answers. And that ultimately leads to a lifestyle and habits of denial. The only way forward, if that's the case, if if everything that I do leads to shame and brokenness and performance, and I'm not very good at performance, and I make a bunch of idols, then I'm just going to work really hard to deny myself. I will serve God. I will deny myself. I will limit desire and pleasure. Limit it. That's the only way forward. How does that work out? When desire and pleasure are things that rise up from within, desire rises up from within, how do you deny that? How do you live a life in habits of denial? How do you limit these things? Well, I think what we need is to see that God is both transcendent to avoid our thinking we're autonomous and near to avoid thinking that he is a chore that we have to run to that he is near. What does Paul go on to say? He says that God has no needs. He doesn't, he's not served by human hands. But he goes on to say his purpose was for the nations to seek after God, perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Though he is not, very, not far from any one of us. For in him, we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone, right? Because God is both transcendent, he is glorious, he is big, 
and because he is near, we shouldn't see him as an idol. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and to turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. In him we live and move and have our being. God is very near. And not only is God near, God came really near by taking on flesh and becoming a man. The same God in Job who says to Job, do you know how to raise the sun in the morning? Became an infant in a womb. Same God. Gloriously transcendent. Became utterly helpless and needy. He is near. He is close. He is near to us. This is why we start our worship service with a call to worship. And why this daily liturgy starts with a call to worship. Because God, who is transcendent and holy and has no needs, has invited you to worship him. You see that? He has come in the person of Jesus to live in your place and to die for you and to give you his very righteousness so that he can say, come to me, worship me. Who can ascend to the holy hill? Only those who are pure. Well, in Jesus, you're pure and only those who are invited can come. And you're invited. Because Jesus has said, come to me. Last week we started with Jesus' words to us, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden with burdens. You see, this autonomy that the world tries to teach us in, has it made us more autonomous? Like, are we really self-sufficient? We're really doing great? I don't think so. We're not doing so hot, right? When we're trying to live on our own and be our own thing and do our own thing, we're not doing very well, are we? We get weary. And Jesus says, come to me and worship me. Come and worship me. Be invited into this worship. That is the grace that we need to start our worship service and to start our day. It starts with this because the only way you're going to function in life, in godliness, and grow to be more and more like Jesus is to know every day, Jesus says, come and worship me. At the start of your day, this day, you get to come and worship me. You get it. Now, it's not a come and worship me because I need your worship. He has no needs. He's like an all-expense-paid trip to the most beautiful place on earth. Come. I'm just inviting you. Just come. You can come and worship me. Do you want to see the most glorious thing in the universe? Come to me. That's why I'm inviting you. Come and worship. So the habit that we need to form is that of worship, being in awe before God being small before him, loving and adoring him. Don't be content to be satisfied by the cheap imitation of autonomy, the cheap imitations of the world. Don't be content to be satisfied with it. Lose yourself in worship of God. This is not about limiting desire and pleasure, right? It's not about denying. It's about directing our desire and pleasure. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what the psalmist says. What, what's at the right hand of God? Jesus. Jesus is the center of pleasures forevermore. And he said, come to me and worship me. Come to me and enjoy me. We need to build habits that cause us this kind of awe and draw us in to worship. So I want to give you a couple of small habits that we can build that are going to connect us to this call to worship. Because it's not just about 
Like the whole point of the call to worship in the daily liturgy and in our worship service is to train you in recognizing these things in every area of your life. It's to build a habit of seeing my life as submitting it to God and his glory and worshiping him. So there are smaller sub-habits that we can kind of build in the midst of this. So I just want to give you three. One, the first is to pause. The call to worship itself, right, in the daily liturgy and in our worship service, it's like the smallest part, right? It's just like we could jump right over it. Don't. Pause. Hear God speak to you and say, you, individually you, come worship me. Pause. And then actually throughout your day, pause. We need to slow down. If we're going to create awe, if we're going to create a sense of transcendence, we need to pause. We need to notice nature around us. One of the greatest ways for you to experience God and to worship him is to get outside and see things that he's made and recognize he cares about this thing. What did he tell Job? Who causes it to rain where no one lives? Did you hear that when he said that? There are things that exist in the universe that we have never seen that exist simply because God loves them and designed them for his pleasure. Go find them. Like, I mean, you could be an astronaut and go find it, or, or a deep-sea diver or whatever, or you could just go find little things. There's beauty all around us. And Muncie's a great place for this. There are like a ton of trails and nature walks and different things that you can get to real quick and easy. Just pause, go outside, breathe in some air, and worship God. Pause and talk to people. Right? Because as glorious as nature is, the most glorious thing in the universe apart from God is you. Stamp with his image and the other 8 billion image bearers on this planet. They're all around you. You want to see the transcendence of God? Talk to a random person because there's the transcendence of God. This person, like, was created, was a baby, and grew up and is amazing, even the most annoying ones. They're amazing. They're incredible. Get to know them. You see, if we see God calling us into worship who has no need, you know what we get to do? We get to show up in the lives of other people without need just to simply love them, just like God does with us. And we can see the transcendence of God as we get to know other people. We need to pause also and be silent. Just be silent with your own thoughts of God. Just pause and listen for God. We need to be, have these habits of pause, but we also need to have habits of embodiment. I just want to give you a couple of quick ones. One, I already mentioned, talk to people. We are embodied creatures, and the way in which we recognize that we are not self-sufficient is by remembering that we're embodied creatures that need rest and sleep and all of those things. But here's a couple of ways that you can remember that you're embodied. Next time you're standing in line for something, leave your phone in your pocket. Don't take out your phone. It's a small habit, not going to cost you anything. But in that moment, you're going to have to look around and be like, oh, there's other people here. Should we talk? Maybe not. Maybe, maybe we should. Whoa, that's a cool wall. That's a cool, like, you'll notice things. Like, just pause and notice. Be present in your surroundings. Don't jump to some false, cheap imitation of the embodied experience that you're in right now. That's more glorious. When you have something in between two things, don't just pick up your phone. Do something productive. Pause. Go outside. Think. Something. And then be embodied. Experience forgiveness in the gospel and love of God, which is not merely a spiritual experience. You 
fully who you are is loved by God. So experience God in that way. The last one is surrender. We need to surrender to God. If he has no need, we are the ones with need. So here's some small ways in which you need to surrender and learn how to surrender to God is you need to ask for help from other people. There's lots of times where you don't want to ask for help from someone else, but you need help. Ask for help. Actually, be helped in really little things that you can even do yourself. Do it with another person rather than do it by yourself because it teaches you, I'm not self-sufficient. I actually need other people and therefore also need God. And learn from other people. Surrender to God. Be silent before him. Now, these few things, you might think, these are all like tiny things. Like, give me something big. The reality is, it's all the little things in life that shape you to who you are. And if we just adjust a few little things in light of coming to the person of Jesus, he will transform you by the Holy Spirit. He will transform you. Remember I said at the beginning of the sermon series, this is becoming more and more like Jesus is both harder and easier than we imagine. It's easier because the practices that I've told you about today like aren't hard at all. And yet it's really hard to change the way in which I think about all these things. But the weariness of life can cause us to say, no, we want to lay down that weariness and we want to come to this transcendent God who has made himself close in Jesus. We want to come and experience this glorious being who knows all the stars in the universe, placed them there, knows them by name, knows every grain of sand on this planet and knows every hair on your head. And who has said, you, come to me. Not because I need you in any way, but because I delight in you. Because I love you. Because I want to sing over you. We spend every Sunday here singing to God, which is right and true that we should respond in worship. But the most songs that happen right now and all the time is the Father singing over you. Zephaniah says that, Zephaniah 3.17, it is, his delight to sing over us. He is delighted in you. He is glorious. He knows all these things, and yet he has said, I love you. So let's come to him, and let's worship him. Let's pray together. Father, we need you. We need you in everything. You have no needs, you are not served by human hands. And yet, Lord, you invite us, fallible creatures, to come and to experience your glory. Would you allow us, Lord, to experience your glory? Would you allow us to come before you and to worship you? Jesus, would you do something mighty in us by your spirit so that we would be transformed, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.